Love a rugby league same game multi? Then you've got to check out Picklebet same game multi. Watch your odds and payouts skyrocket when you combine your favorite team's markets like head-to-head, first try scorer, and winning margin. Picklebet, the next-gen betting app and official sponsor of the NRL All-Stars podcast. What are you really gambling with? For free and confidential support, call 1-800-858-858 or visit gamblinghelponline.org.au. Hey now, you're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley here for the Talk and Footy episode of the week. Had a cracker of a Supercoach chat with so much going on in Supercoach. That went up yesterday, so certainly take a peek at that one if you're looking for your Supercoach team. For ahead of tonight's round, starting and thinking, geez, I don't know what to do. But this episode, all about footy, no Supercoach. And for that, we got Matty Person back on board after a couple of weeks per so. Welcome back to the podcast, mate. Hopefully you've had a decent couple of weeks off and you're ready to talk some footy. Well, always good to be talking footy, mate. It's getting into crunch time of the season now. But, um, well, for some teams anyway. Poor old Tigers look like we're going back-to-back spoons and your chooks aren't doing too well either, mate. So we might be going for the Warriors in the semis. Yeah, I know. It's um, it's an interesting run home right now for a number of teams, and including the teams that are outside the top eight or that are looking dead in the water. There's a lot of controversy around them and how they finish their seasons as well. So never without a storyline, the NRL seasons, that's for sure. Uh, and we are going to talk about your Tigers straight up as well. Uh, so for anyone listening for the first time, the Talking Footy podcast, we've got a heap on for this one. We're going to talk round 20 review, going to talk Brandon Smith, we're going to talk about some recent signings. Got a new segment called The Positive Pitch, and that's going to be our positive story, our positive chat for the week. Listener's Corner, where we get a suggestion or a question raised during discussion to some of the listeners. Barnsley Spray of the Week will be a nice one this week, and a great legendary one, which spotlights an ex-rugby league player's career and our memories about them. So, huge episode, Perso. But you mentioned your Tigers. When we're looking at round 20, they were the first team off the rank to kick off round 20 against the Newcastle Knights. Playing away, obviously, the elephant in the room will address immediately. The Tigers have been under huge pressure for certainly the last month, but the media has really piled on the past week as well. Uh, and I, I'm i not going to say I'm surprised because, look, any team that's under pressure is going to cop a bit. I sort of feel like the Tigers are probably copping a little bit more than some other teams. But... I am slightly surprised in the manner that it's being presented, I guess, because looking at this game, you know, they were quite competitive. You know, Newcastle are a non-top eight side, but to me, they've been in pretty good form. You know, guys like Caelan Pongo have been one of the form players at the competition the last month of football or so. And they're going to McDonald Jones Stadium, so it's not an easy trek. And when you're looking at the game, you know, the, the night started off on fire. They just went crazy right from the outset and scored four tries in a row between the fourth and the 26th minute. And thankfully, Caelan Ponga didn't bring his kicking boots because he only converted one of those. But you sort of thought, oh, well, 18-0, the Tigers are done and dusted, playing away at McDonald Jones Stadium, 27 minutes in, they're done. But they fought back and they scored a couple of tries there, uh, which they converted to at the break. It was only 18-12 at halftime. And I sort of thought, 
you know, the Tigers showed a bit of something. They showed a bit of fight because if it's a side that's really packed it in, you, a side like that's down 18 nil like that is going to just capitulate most of the time. And then Caelan Ponga scored immediately after the half, but then they came back with Jareem Buller scoring. And, and it was a really tight contest until you got close to the 60th minute where the Knights put it away and won 34 to 18. So at the end, person, I sort of thought, well, you know, if I was a Tigers fan, certainly the last couple of weeks, I'd feel like the team was competitive. They're just not very good. And that's you know, a lot better than a few weeks ago where they just absolutely got smashed and capitulated and didn't even put in much effort at all. So I sort of thought the last couple of weeks have been a little bit better. But the way the media is talking and stuff about this game, you'd swear they lost about 80 nil. So as a Tigers fan, how did you kind of feel about the match? Oh, look, the efforts there, Bargy, it's just we haven't got the team. The, the back line particularly is, let's face it, it's a reserve-grade back line, really, at the moment. We speak with um, Brooks and Dewey missing. Aside from Jareem Buller, who's, what, 11 games into his career. So we just don't have the class. And we completed it like 63%, I think, which is, that's always going to kill you. But um, it did, for the first 20 minutes, it looked like it was going to be repeated the Cowboys game there for a bit, but they dug in and kept themselves in the game, largely due to Ponga's horrible kicking. But they were thereabouts for 50-odd minutes of the game, and then the Knights ran away with it. It was a game the Knights never really looked like losing, even when it got back to 18-12 or whatever it was there. But, um, you know, that's, the season's gone for the Tigers. It could be playing a lot worse for a team that's got no chance of doing anything. The key stats for this one, really, 47 missed tackles for the Tigers. That was double what Newcastle missed. And on top of that as well, 63% completion rate. But the halves that we had in this game, you know, you had Wakeham and Will Smith. Yeah, that's that's going to be very tough. Uh, Coruscant came back, which is going to help them. And, and Will Smith isn't in the side for this week. So, look, it, it could have been worse. Um, I think probably Newcastle deserve a mention. They are a team who have been rising a bit. Caelan uh, Ponga's kicking was not very good, but I thought that their, uh, their attack has been pretty good to watch uh, the last few weeks in particular. And they seem to be rounding in to try and compete. And that's certainly, I'm sure, what Newcastle fans want. They want to see games like this where they're putting teams away that they should. But Newcastle have also been competitive against some of the top eight teams as well with a a heartbreaking loss a couple of months ago to the Penrith Panthers, for instance. So, yeah, I think on the other side of things, Newcastle are on a bit of a roll here. How do you sort of see their football they're playing at the moment? I'm I'm loving what Dom Young's doing. Even though he's leaving, he's really putting in big Greg Marzio on the other wing. Is really tough to handle. He was in this game with a lot of carries. And Caelan Pong has just been sensational. Yeah, Pong is in red hot form, isn't he? Um, there's a lot to like about the Knights' attack at the moment. Uh, everyone sort of keeps harping on about how that left edge with um, Ponga and Best and Marju, but they're scoring plenty on the right hand side as well. Dom Young's getting plenty of tries, so they're scoring down both edges. Um, they are pushing. Up towards the top eight, I don't know if they're going to be good enough to make it in there. It's going to be pretty tough now, I think. But um, they're definitely going to be a thorn in a few teams' sides if they don't get there. I've got to mention the stats of that back three. Kalen Ponga had a try and a line break. He had three try assists and four line break assists. And then the two big wingers, big Greg Marzu, three line breaks, one try, held up on another one, nine tackle breaks. And on top of that, on the other wing, You've got Dom Young scoring two tries with three line breaks and a try assist himself. That back three for Newcastle was fantastic on the weekend. 
and they are they're pretty exciting to watch. So Newcastle have got some things to look forward to, I think. Uh, unfortunately, Dom yeah. Young will be leaving, so that's going <laughs> to suck for them next year. But at the moment, for the next couple of months of the season, you know, it's not too bad for Newcastle. But a team that is pretty bad for is the Canterbury Bulldogs. 44-24, they lost to the Broncos. I actually put a sneaky one on, on this one person on Picklebet. I thought that uh, the Dogs might have a chance here because the, the Broncos are under strength. They've got players out. Uh, they still had Reese Walsh out for this one, which I think was a big deal. Plus other players, you know, Payne Haas was still out. And it just looked like playing at Belmore post Josh Reynolds' last game in New South Wales Cup. It, I just felt like you, the, the Bulldogs might have had something in here to, to upset the, the Broncos. At least come close. Now, for the first part of the game, you know, they started off brilliantly. Jacob Preston went over for a try in the third minute. Belmore was beaming. People everywhere shouting Bulldogs. It was just looking like, wow, this is the ambush I thought could happen. And then in the 14th minute, Adam Reynolds scored and, and the Broncos just uh, went up pretty easily. But by the half, it was pretty... Right before the half anyway, it was pretty neck and neck. The, the Mariner try right before half time probably gave the, the Broncos momentum. But then they just came out firing the Bronx in that second half and just absolutely put them to the sword. So certainly the defensive effort of the Bulldogs in the second half, I think would be hugely concerning. We said it in prior podcasts where Cameron Geraldo is a, a defensive coach and the dog's defense just keeps on being utterly awful. It, I don't think 24 points is anything to sneeze at against a good side, but some of the tries that the Broncos were able to score were pretty bad. And it isn't even to miss tackles and things. It's just to, you know, wide gaps and guys just running through and just, it's been happening all year. Doesn't seem to be getting better. And I think a lot of people would look at this scoreline person if they didn't watch the game and say, well, you know, the Broncos put on 44, but that's sort of to be expected. With the side they tried it out, you know, they had a very weak forward pack. They're missing Walsh at fullback, which is a big part of their attack. And Corey Oates even pulled out before the game as well for his milestone game. You know, that it wasn't a fantastic Broncos side. I don't think they should have just automatically been able to put 44 on them. Sort of neck and neck for the first... 30, 35 minutes, and as you said, second half, Broncos came out and just held them up, really. Um, Bulldogs are in a similar situation to the Tigers. It's like, I know they've got a lot of um, buys this year, the Dogs, but a lot of them have missed a lot of time on the park as well. There's in the side at the moment. There's fair few reserve graders in there, so they did well to be in the contest there for a while and run off the back of the crowd there for the grubs farewell. But I think in the end, the class just was too much from the Broncos. Their completion rate was pretty good at 80%. It wasn't like they lost the game from making a hit there. It was just defensively how forward they got carved up. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, look, there was a couple of standouts that I guess, you know, if Bulldogs want anything positive to look at, I thought Avrilo's been very good. He got moved to one a couple of weeks ago. He's got two tries himself with a line break, seven tackle breaks. He only had the one error as well. He's been very good for them in attack and much better than what I thought he would be. And Preston is going to be a back rower for the next 10 years for them if they can keep him. 11 runs, one offload, one line break try and 45 tackles. And he only missed two tackles as well in a, in a real tough game. So pretty big work rate, pretty big efficiency rate on his tackling as well. That's a couple of bright spots for them. But really, uh, this season getting away from them fast. They do have kick out back this week. Do you think that they can turn this around so they can at least finish on a bit of a positive? No, not really. I think they're... Similar boat to the Tigers and the Dragons. They're just sort of all hanging on to the end of the year now. Some weeks they'll have a, put in some good performances. Other weeks they're just going to get flogged. So 
see if they can improve more next season. But um, yeah, Preston's definitely a great find. He's a red-hot chance for Rookie of the Year this season. Bit of controversy in this one as well. There was, um, I actually said on Twitter a couple of times that the Broncos have been absolutely dudded in this game. Uh, there was firstly the Selwyn Cobo Sinbin. And I've got to say, <laughs> like, it was, was bizarre. It, it's funny because like, I can have a go at the bunker about it. But the first thing is no one in the broadcast team on Fox Sports could see that it was nothing to do with his forearm. So for anyone that missed it, uh, Selwyn got sent off into the bin for a forearm that he used running the ball. And we ended up with a player down with a, a busted nose and bleeding mouth and blood all over his face and stuff. But it was because after he slid down on Selwyn Cobbo, Selwyn Cobbo's knee inadvertently smashed him in the head against the ground. And you could see straight away, like on first look, I saw it. And I thought, oh, he's absolutely copped that knee. That's, that's terrible. When you cop a knee in the head like that, it is awful. And everyone in the broadcast team was just talking about this raised elbow. And it was like, there was nothing in the raised forearm. It, it was like a push off. It wasn't, it never had the impact to do any of that damage. And they didn't talk until half time to review it 15 times to even notice in the broadcast on Fox that it was actually the, the knee. But per se, the bunker, it's how yeah. you cannot miss that stuff. It is amateur hour. And it was 100% a sin bin because of the outcome because you've got a player laid out on the ground with blood all over his face, they're, they're saying, oh, well, that's the outcome of that that raised arm, so he's got to go to the bin. It was nothing to do with it. It should have been play on, and it's just an unfortunate rugby league incident where he's collected a knee while he's on the ground because he got run over. And I, I just I can't fathom how the bunker can assess a situation where they get to watch it several times over, and sending someone to the bin is a really big deal in 2023 because teams will run right over you over that period and they just get it so wrong. Well, they got all the angles we have and then more. I don't understand how they missed that. That was bizarre. You could tell that the damage was done from the knee and the impact into the ground. Like it's, it was obvious. I don't, <laughs> that whole situation just baffled me. As you said, commentators didn't even pick up on it. I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, and stuff like that changes games. So, I mean, it, it, the Broncos did well to, to come back from that. Then the Bulldogs were pretty poor not to be able to put the Broncos to the sword a bit more over that period. I think the Broncos actually won that 10-minute period 6-0 or 12-0, um, which is really poor for the Dogs. Manly Seagulls, another team on life support at the moment. They lose 19-8 to against the North Queensland Cowboys, who has to be set a red hot. Manly go down to 11th. Um, they're still within touch of the top eight as most sides are. Uh, the Cowboys move up to ninth, actually on equal points now with the South Sydney Rabbitohs and Paramount Eels, who are seven and eight. Big win for the Cowboys. They've been going fantastic, as to be said. You know, Drinkwater scores another try. Um, the, Jeremiah Maya Nanai is on fire at the moment as well. He's been fantastic since he's come back from suspension. Uh, and for the Seagulls, really, I thought they were pretty limp. Um, probably lucky that they kind of stayed in this one a little bit. And I I don't really see a way out for the Seagulls either at the moment. I kind of have put a line through them myself. I think a lot of people did when when Turbo went down. Numbers-wise, I think it it's almost more damning that the Manly side didn't have terrible numbers when you look at the stats. 78% completion rate was better than the Cowboys. They had close to 50% of the possession. Um, and even when you look at the missed tackles, you know, 36 missed tackles are Manly and 31 to the Cowboys, which is 
reasonably high, but not too much. Um, the Cowboys conceded seven penalties. Manly only conceded one. They were playing at home. It's sort of worse that the numbers are close per se because it all just points to Manly just not being able to convert and win games. And that's going to fall a lot on Daly Cherry Evans. And unfortunately, there just isn't anyone else there that can really do much without Turbo there. And that's probably going to be the story of their season for this back third. Yeah, I think it was always inevitable when Turbo went down that they merely need a, a fit and firing Turbo just to have that extra punch and attack against the better sides. As you said, Cherry Evans pretty much done anyone doing anything. Josh Hughes is fairly inexperienced. And Ruben Garrick at fullback, he's solid, but he's not really a ball-playing fullback. And um, Lachlan Croker is the same. He's solid, but he doesn't really create a hell of a lot of tries. So the forward backs sort of kept them in that game. They just didn't um, didn't have the punch to get through the Cowboys' defence. Cowboys seem to be back in the form they were in last year. All their origin players are firing again, and they're looking quite dangerous. Yeah, including that game, over that last three-week period, the Cowboys have only led in 14 points, which is which is pretty remarkable for a side that was getting a few points put on them. So... They've had a really good turnaround for a side against Manly. It was a terrible matchup, though, because a side that's defending like that and Manly struggling in attack, it was always going to be a recipe for disaster for them. I have to say, drink water stats, line break try, a line break assist again, five tackle breaks, two offloads, which is basically averaging a game for the last couple of months. He, I, I don't want to go full Fox Sports propaganda here, but. Uh, I'm not going to say it's like the Hayne run of 20, 2009 into the finals where he stormed the Eels into the top eight and uh, just absolutely tore apart teams. But I tell you what, it did remind me of it, Perso. It isn't it, but it reminded me of it as far as a fullback in the second half of a season, just completely flipping the form guide and bringing his side from the brink of death into the top eight and, and going on with it. His last two months... I've been as good as any I remember in recent memory anyway, as far as a player um, being able to go on this type of run. Oh, he's been absolutely scintillating, Drinkwater. Very good. It's very good to watch him at the moment. Dearden's been really good as well. It's a bit of a form reversal for the Cowboys on the last season. They started really strong last season, especially defensively, and then they sort of fell away a bit. Let's kind of let more points in towards the end of the season. And they've sort of turned it around the opposite way this year. So they sneak into the eight. They're going to be a massive problem, I think. Drinkwater's form is just uh, like, not quite Jared Hayne from 2009, but it's um, definitely up there. He just looks like he can, he's just carving up a will at the moment. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing with it is that uh, teams know. So the, the before the game and the week leading into it, Manly basically said, oh, we know that we've got to, we've got to stop Drinkwater to be able to have a chance at, at beating the Cowboys because of the form he's in. And they didn't at all. You know, the teams know, and they're talking about it the week prior to the matches, and Drinkwater is still able to do it. And he still seems to have so much time and just be so hard to put pressure on. The Sydney Roosters played at the Sydney Cricket Ground, lost 30-16 to 16 against the Storm. I actually switched this one off in the second half and um and had to go back and watch the replay because <laughs> I didn't want to watch it anymore. Uh, it was um disappointing. It was a 6-4 at the half, and... It was a bit of a gritty, grindy type of game. And as a Roosters fan, I kind of didn't mind that as long as we got the win. Uh, I would like to see a bit more in our attack, but yeah, they, they sort of have looked better in spurts, the Roosters. And the Storm haven't really done enough for me to say, look, they're a premiership contender. They're, they're a real gun top four side. The second half comes. 
probably a boring game for a lot of people. I, I enjoyed the the hits and stuff because these teams kind of go each other a fair bit. 52nd minute, Jerome Hughes scores a try, and then all of a sudden, floodgates open, and the Melbourne Storm score four tries in a row unanswered until the 77th minute, and you may as well throw away 12 points of that Rooster scoreline. It was really a 30-6 to six, um, drubbing, because, or 30-4 to four drubbing, because they scored in the 77th and the 80th minute when the game was absolutely over. It was uh, pretty bad from a Roosters perspective for me. Uh, I know that the, uh, the Roosters are in pretty bad shape with how they're attacking and stuff. The, the, the possession, you know, 47%, completion rate, 74%. Not that bad. But defensively per se, that period especially was an absolute killer from around that 52nd minute onwards where they, they missed 54 tackles for the game. And that is way too many. And even with the penalties, you know, the Roosters, say, the Roosters detractors say, oh, they're so ill-disciplined and stuff. They only gave eight penalties. The Storm gave 10. So, I mean, it's not even about that. It's just defensively something that I thought that when you're losing firepower, you're losing your attack, that the Roosters would be able to hang their hat on and still be able to win games on. Defensively, it's the biggest deal. And this game it was because they missed those 54 tackles. And they allowed the storm that 20 minute period where they just absolutely killed them and they seemed to do it easily. Yeah, the Roosters' defence all season has sort of been a bit not what you'd expect from the Chooks over the last few years. Um, their attack has just been, they just haven't been able to convert their opportunities, Barnes, have they? I mean, they had eight line breaks of three in that game. They only managed to score two tries right at the end there, so for the three tries of the game. But, yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is there. It's just been one of those seasons with the Chooks. I mean, if Tedesco plays that game, does he make that much of a difference that they could have won? I probably don't think so. Yeah, and it's, that was a controversial point of this game as well. And I've been fairly open in saying that I... I'm not I'm not a Roosters fan that, that says, you know, Robbo should get the chop or he's a terrible coach and all this stuff or he's overrated or he's, you know, a pretender. You, you don't have the sort of coaching career that he's had over the last 10 years if that's the case so you know it's fine but every coach is going to make some mistakes I thought this was a mistake like I don't understand how Trent Robinson thought that he had the luxury of resting James Tedesco and I've had a few people with a different opinion and stuff argue with me about it I've seen different points of view in the media and stuff saying look he needs a rest and stuff well there's probably a good reason I'm sure there was a good reason I'm sure mentally he was exhausted from origin and all the criticism and he needed a rest. I'm sure physically he's probably tired too, but it's one of those things that we talk about in rugby league per se, that seems to have gone by the wayside the last decade where it's like part of the gladiator type of sport that it is, is that you push through and you play through the pain barrier and you're playing at 70 or 80% all the time. and, And you do that when your team needs a win. Now, if the Melbourne storm wanted to rest Cameron Munster and, and Harry Grant, I don't think I would hear boo from anyone about it. And I'd certainly support it because, you know, they're they're in the top four at the moment. They can do that. They've earned the right. The Roosters haven't. And they can't afford to lose any games at all. So I found it actually quite bizarre. As a Roosters fan, I thought Trent Robinson made a mistake. Uh, I think that it is on Trent Robinson. I think that if he sent it to Tedesco, you know, you're playing. Teddy wouldn't have said anything about it. Um, But where I will defend Teddy is there was a, a lot being made, particularly from Buzz Rothfield, about him not being at the game. And to me, I don't care about any of that. Like to me, if, if he needed to be refreshed, if he had 
a lot of mental um, scarring from that Origin series. If he was burnt out mentally and physically, the best thing for him to do was to get away, to get away from rugby league for a week, to not be around the game because the pressure's still going to be there for him. Uh, so I, I thought that that was the right decision for him not to be there and the right decision for the Roosters to allow him not to be there for the week. But I would have played him in the first place. And you say what sort of difference it would have made. When it's a 6-4 ball game at the half, maybe, you know, Tedesco scored five tries in the last four games. He has absolutely carried the entire Roosters' attack. And you put him in there and you think, well, he could have scored a try in that first half. He might have scored two. And then all of a sudden you're looking at maybe a a 16-6 scoreline. And that's a lot different going into the half. And maybe we have a different 20-minute period from that 50-odd minute from the Melbourne Storm as well if he's there. So... I think it could have made a difference, but how did you feel about it all? Yeah, it's. I thought it was a bit strange, unless he had some kind of injury, like a niggle, that um, would be better off missing a week. Cause it was a, pretty much a must-win. Every game for the Chooks is a must-win now. Uh, I don't know if there's a bit more to it or not, or if it's just his... Apparently, Robbo's put his hand up, and it was his idea, which you would imagine it would. Wouldn't see too many players, especially Tedesco's calibre, coming in and saying, oh, I can't play this week, mate. I don't feel up to it. So, I don't think you'll know whether it was a right or wrong answer until another four or five weeks. If Desco comes back after that week off and absolutely brains it and gets the chooks into the finals, then you're not going to say it was a bad decision, are you? Well, as long as they get to the finals, it's just a, it's a risk that... They missed by two points. Yeah. <laughs> that well, was a failure, wasn't it? Yeah, it's probably... It's just a risk that I don't think they can afford to take. Um, a couple of the things that I thought were positive and there wasn't many but look I've got to say look everyone knows that I'm Daniel Tupo is one of my favorite players he came up and equaled Minicello's record for all-time try scorer uh, and then scored two tries in this one had three line breaks himself a line break assist five tackle breaks two offloads for a side that couldn't score tries couldn't attack he really put in and he had 17 hit-ups and uh, 175 run meters and I'll tell you what it's pretty unassuming Tupes like a lot of people don't really look sideways at him, especially when you're talking about um, star players. But he is someone who is now going to be the all-time try-scoring record holder for the Sydney Roosters, which is a big deal in a long story history. Um, And he's just, again, even in his 30s now, going about his business the same as what he was before with his work rate and his effort levels. And he was he was one of the bright spots for me, and it was it was good to at least see him get that record. Obviously, he would have preferred to win, but do you think that he doesn't quite get enough coverage or credit as what maybe some other stars do? I, I can think about guys like Alex Johnston's try scoring record and some of these other big try scorers and stuff, and I just sort of think, well, people aren't really talking about Toops too much. Oh, he's so underrated, Barnsley. He's just so consistent. He's been more consistent for about ten years now. Even when he's not scoring tries, the amount of work he does out of the back end and gets chooks off to a good start for their sets. He's just every book. I couldn't remember a game where he hasn't run for 100 metres. And that's like at a minimum. He's always pushing sort of up around 150 to 200. He's doing playing as well now as what he was when he got picked in Origin regularly. Yeah, for sure. And he wasn't even talked about as an option either. Um, and admittedly, the Roosters weren't doing well, but he's. Yeah, he's played well all year aside from his, his injury portion of the season in the middle. Uh, Radley's been moved to an edge and we saw that again here and it looks like it's going to be pretty permanent with the Roosters' injuries and the makeup of their side now. 
he was pretty decent in his 80 minutes. He had two line breaks himself, a couple of offloads. Um, those are things that he wasn't doing in the middle anymore that he used to do. So I think that he's finding a bit more freedom on the edge. Still had a good work rate, though. Uh, 14 runs, 32 tackles. And I think one of the things that going on the edge will do, he is a good enough player to to go onto an edge and transition pretty well. He does have a little bit of attack in him that probably gets hidden a little bit as a number 13. But it does take him out of, uh, I guess, that kind of mindset and game plan of going in and trying to be a little front row and belting everyone and ending up with some high shots and stuff more than what he probably will on an edge. And that might be better for his career. <laughs> so I, I didn't mind the move from Robbo. It does seem to be okay at the moment with what he's done. Um, we saw it in this game and he was pretty effective. What did you make of the move from uh, uh, the middle to an edge for Radley? Yeah, I actually like that move, Barnes. I think he's suited to an edge. Uh, people say he's, he's over the last couple of seasons, he's been a real key to the Chooks attack playing that link role at 13, but Brown can do that as well. That was a good pickup while the Chooks getting Nathan Brown. And, um, yeah, definitely don't have to lead the line speed as an edge back row. So you're not running out of the line trying to belt bikes every every set like you are in the middle. So that could do him some favours with his tackling technique. But um, I think he'd be successful on the edge. I'd like to see more of it before I can make a, a um, more astute judgment of it. But I think he looked pretty good. Yeah, and, and for people saying, and I've seen this on Roosters forums too, you know, Trent Robinson, He's got to change things up. He's got to do some different stuff. He has been like Radley is a big move, and I think that's one that's actually paid off. We got Suwali back on the wing, which always needed to happen, and that's a big change. Um, Manu is back to the centres this week, and that needed to happen. We needed to swallow our pride and say we shouldn't be playing him at six. So I think there has been changes. I think that the Rooster side this week is about as good as what we will get, um, considering we've got you know four or five season-ending injuries, including Sam Walker, who's now been ruled out for the year today. And there's also a heap of other guys that are still out as well. And we've lost guys like Lodge because we had to let them go and things. It's With the side that they've got, they've probably picked the best that is available at the moment. So certainly do or die every week now, per se. But do you think that their season was ended by Melbourne on the weekend? Or do you think that they're a chance of going on a run? Just haven't seen anything from them this year to suggest that they are going to go on a run. But they did last year. Um, they've certainly got the team there if they can fire to do it, but they're making it tough for themselves now. They've pretty much got to win every game. Yeah, I, I think I think the injuries are going to take the toll. I think that they needed Sam Walker back. Like you, people forget other guys too. Like Satili Tupanua is a pretty big loss. Connor Watson hasn't played all year. Uh, and then you've got Sam Walker on top of that, plus everybody else that's injured as well. Um, obviously, Angus Crichton is going to be back in a few weeks, but that's a few weeks too late for us. And he's a he was in a World Cup back row seven months ago. So, I mean... Uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, the draw, too. I mean, they've got three games they should easily win and then they've got um, thrown in the middle of them. They've got Brisbane, Parramatta, both way, and the Rabbits in the final round. So, it's uh, certainly going to test them. Yeah, I think that one of the good things with the draw, the games like that last couple... The Rabbits game in the last round, uh, That first of all, how much of a blockbuster is that going to be if the Roosters have to win to get through to the top eight and the Rabbits have the ability to end the season? <laughs> Look. The Rabbitohs might have to win to get in the top eight too. It's pretty tight, that bottom end of the top eight. Yeah, I, I think that the best thing the Roosters can hope for is that the Rabbits go on the run that I think 
a few of us, including me and you, probably think that they can go on where they're going to be in the top four fairly comfortably coming into that last round. Because I'm sure that they'll want to do that, not just to be in the top four, but I think that guys like Murray and Latrell they'll put, put in cotton wool and the rest in that last game. If they're, you know, second or third and can't move sort of thing from anywhere, then they'll probably rest guys and that'll help the Roosters. So I might have to actually barrack for the South Sydney Rabbitohs over the next month to try and get us an easier <laughs> win in the last round, maybe. Yeah, it's so tight. It's, it's a, I don't know, I can't see the Cowboys missing the eight. So already someone out of the, there's got to drop out for them to slip in and then the Chooks can slip in. You could end up with two of the Rabbitohs, Sharks and Eels missing out. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just, I was looking at it today and it, it's just so tight. It's incredible. You know, even Newcastle, like Newcastle have got a, a pretty good run. Um, three out of the next five, but they've got at home, one against the Storm, one against the House. But the other three, uh, Raiders, Dolphins and Bulldogs, you know, they, they've got some wins coming uh, and they've been pretty good in their intense spot. So, I mean, it's it, it's it's going to be some good teams that miss out on the top eight this year, that's for sure. Um, we would be remiss if we w- didn't mention the Storm. Uh, they've been pretty up and down. They've come out of origin and they've had a couple of guys in particular, Harry Grant and Munster, that have had to back up as you know superstars and they came through and backed up really well. I think that Melbourne are going to see some more consistent football now. I, I think that most of the time, per so out of the origin period, we start to see wins like this one uh, where they get to their best and they sort of peak for the finals type of thing. I'm starting to come around on Melbourne. I've been pretty critical of them this year. I don't like the football that I've seen from them, but I think that both Grant and Munster, especially are going to be relieved that the origin period is probably over so they can focus on the storm. Um, But how do you see them sort of going on with this from what you saw on the weekend? Well, he's got a great knack of getting them right at the right end of the season. Um, Sitting in third spot now, I can't see them dropping really. They've been... Just getting the job done without being impressive this season, Melbourne. So if they just keep building the right week. Well, you're a brave man to rule them out altogether in the coming semi-finals, aren't you? They just seem to be there or thereabouts every year. Well, they they put their stamp on this one as well, and I think they will start to go on with it now as well. But I mean, look, Melbourne aren't even safe either in the top four. They might, they could even go out of the top eight if they're not careful. Uh, talking about teams maybe falling out of the top eight, the Cronulla Sharks lost forty-four to twelve against the Warriors. It was an awful game from the Sharks. There is no other way to put it. I was watching it, and I just thought it was utterly awful. Now, a lot of people will say, well, the Warriors are really good. They are. And look, I have to give full credit to the Warriors. They were sensational. Their attack is up there with the best in the competition at the moment with how easily they are putting points on sides, and they absolutely tore the Sharks to shreds. Uh, it was. It's one of those things, per se, where you have these games where it's like, well, you know that they're going to target Moylan and, and Teague Wilton because every team has pleasure every single game at the moment getting some points there, and the Warriors were no exception. Uh, and then Wilton obviously goes down pretty early on, and you have Wade Graham there, and it's like, well, this is just as good, if not better. So it, it's obviously something that Craig Fitzgibbon has responded to with dropping Matt Moylan, which I think is probably too late. I think he should have done that before. But Okay, it was just, it was incredible how easy the Warriors put points on the Sharks and how little effect the Sharks defence had on them. They had a 91% completion rate. And it's, you know, it feels like that we're talking about Sean Johnson every week, but he was, he was very good again. And the Sharks just really didn't do anything to limit them, didn't do anything to fight back. The Warriors actually missed more tackles than the Sharks. They missed 43 tackles and the Sharks missed 38. 
which I thought was probably the only time I've seen that type of scoreline that that's actually happened. Um, line breaks, nine to four, the Warriors won. But the Warriors just seemed to convert every single opportunity they had in that game. And the Sharks just couldn't do anything. It was one of those games. The Warriors are very good and the Sharks are very poor. It's as simple as that. It's just like they didn't turn up. The Sharks, their edge defence was atrocious. I actually thought Militalo is probably pretty lucky that he wasn't in the side getting dropped. He's been making a lot of bad defensive reads. He's not getting through anywhere near as much work that he used to either, coming out of his own end. He's been quite poor. Uh, the Warriors just did a so Warriors have got their best defensive record since 2011. They're defending really well as well as attack. So when both things are gelling and you can play that 90%, you're not losing too many games. Are you? Their spine is just on fire at the moment, all four of them. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane. And I mean, when you talk about Militalo, I think I agree with you. I think he's very lucky to not be dropped. He, probably for a good month, I think he's been pretty ordinary. And you mentioned the defensive reads, and that's certainly a problem. There's no question about that. But I think that we were about 70 minutes into that game and he had seven runs. And at the same time, too, he got a couple of opportunities where I guess people could fairly argue, oh, look, they were pretty hard finishes to, to get a try out of. But but at the same time, yeah, they he just sort of seems to be going through the motions a little bit to me when he's got the ball and when he doesn't have the ball. And he makes these mistakes. And in the last month especially, it just seems to be, oh, well, I made another mistake. Or I missed out on the trial. He just seems to be going through the motions too much. He, he looks to me like somebody who needs a real old-fashioned kick up the arse. And being dropped might have actually done that to him because at the moment, just with his body language, just with his form, just with how he's playing and the effort that he's putting in, it, it just looks like someone who thinks that he's a walk-up start every week. And he shouldn't be. There's other guys that are in uh, the second grade for the Sharks. You know, Connor Tracy's got his chance this week. Young Iroh. He's been a very, very good player in New South Wales Cup for a couple of years now. Uh, there's other guys that they can get in there. And Mulatalo's attitude, even when you look at things that aren't on the stat sheet, there were times where there was a ball put up and there, there was other Sharks players there to contest it and he just didn't get anywhere near and he just sort of stood there and went, oh, well, you know, the ball's up, I'll wait until someone gets it or, or whatever and go back to my wing. You can see it there so much in his body language and I'm, I'm like you, I'm quite shocked that he didn't get dropped um, and someone like Talakai did. And to me, Perso, what did you make of the Talakai dropping? Because Moylan's an easy one. Uh, I didn't think that Talakai getting dropped to the bench was going to happen. Um, but I guess the, the thinking there is that they can use him as a as a forward off the bench and maybe he'll be more effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think with um, Teague Wilton going down, I think that's where they'll, they'll rotate him with young Jesse Calhoun on the bench there. So that's kind of Tracy comes in. He's does his job every time he gets a chance. Uh, that's a good move for the Sharks, really. He's a bit of an underrated player, kind of Tracy. Especially defensively, he's very good. So that'll help them. But, um, yeah, I thought Militar was pretty lucky. Like you said, Iroh's been banging the door down there for at least 18 months. So we'll wait and see what happens there. If he keeps playing the way he is, I think he's got to get dropped. Yeah, and you can't wait too long. Um, and look, you need to give probably a little bit of credit to Fitzgibbon for dropping Moylan. I think that a lot of, especially a lot of inexperienced coaches and ones that um, definitely the ones that aren't in the top eight, they they would probably just keep playing guys like Moylan because, you know, he's one of those guys where it's like, oh, he's a veteran, he's got the experience, you know. He's, yeah, he, he just he, A lot of teams probably take the, the easy way out. Um, and it would have been a hard conversation, I think, to have with Matt Moylan as well. So I think that Fitzgibbon's done well doing that early in his career. 
definitely a good move. I mean, it puts the whole team on notice, doesn't it? That nobody's position safe. If you're not performing and we've got players in your position below you that are performing, well, you'll be swapping over and going back to Reggie. So it's, I think that was the message that Fitzgibbon wants to make. It's obviously not happy with the way the team's going, especially defensively. So everyone's on notice. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned like the back three for the Warriors. When you look at stats, nickel clock start, I can't believe the form turnaround he's had. Um, he had a try and a line break, also a line break, try assist, tackle break, but 24 runs. He has been a different type of player when you watch him, but almost Roger Tuivasa-Sheck-esque, you know, with his massive work rate. Like, it reminds me of the Roosters when, when Sheck was running 27 times a game and making all these metres and stuff and got better as a ball player. It's sort of what CMK has been doing. And then you've got Wateni Zalesniak, who looks like he's just woken from a slumber for about five years and just come out here and decided that he's Nathan Blacklock. Like he's just scored doubles every week and he's just doing it easily and he's just finishing so well. It's uh, oh, it looks like he's been shot out of a cannon when he hits it up from his own end too. He's just been sensational, isn't he? Yeah, you just got to say a lot of credit probably has to go to Webster because these guys were there before and, and it just wasn't there. And now it is. And even someone like Montoya, you know, he's, He's gone from being a questionable first grader to being you know, a solid first grader for them on the other wing. Um, but yeah, we can talk about Sean Johnson all day. The last guy we've got to mention, though, I think is Fenua Blake, you could argue, is the form prop, prop in the competition for the last couple of months. He's got a mountain of tries. He's got another line break and try here. Had three offloads. Uh, can play the bigger minutes now. He seems to be a lot fitter than what he was for the Warriors last year, which was, a, which was quite poor from him. Um, but he seems just really motivated, really fit and really firing. And people could argue that they've got the best prop in the game right now uh, in how he's actually playing and considering that Haas has been on a bit of a downswing and injured the last month of footy and, and Tino has been a bit up and down the last month too. Uh, I don't think I could argue with anyone about AFB. No, and to be fair, he was in pretty good form at Manly when the Warriors signed him. It was probably his best season he'd had to that point. And then he's been a little bit disappointing since joining the Warriors, but he's, this year he's been outstanding. So whatever Webster's doing over there, he's just getting extra out of every single player. Like you look at Jackson Ford and yeah, well, he's going on the edge. He couldn't crack it at the Dragons. Montoya, you're saying every week now he's getting over 100 metres. He's just gone to another level. Even Wade Egan, he's finally reaching his potential. So whatever the coaching staff are doing there, it's definitely working at the Warriors. We need to move on. The Penrith Panthers over the Dolphins. Uh, has to be said, I was very surprised that... Uh, Penrith took until the last 12 minutes of his match to win it, but I guess that's, um, you know, the effect of resting your origin players and also uh, Nathan Cleary given an extra week to recuperate from his injury. Uh, Isaac Tango, outstanding again, two tries, eighth in the 17th minute. And the way he was looking as well, you know, you sort of thought, wow, you know, Tango could go for a quaddy here. I reckon he's good money for a four-try haul here, but to the Dolphins' credit, they stood up, and they probably stood up better than what they have in the last month where they've been getting some big scores put on them. Um, they always try and fight back, though, which I love about the Finns. And they did it again here, and it was sort of... I had a multi on per se, so I really wanted Penrith to win. But <laughs> at the same time, I was like, oh, it'd be really nice for the <laughs> Dolphins to get a win like this because they've worked really hard. But, of course, Penrith come through, and it's um, their unsung heroes from the New South Wales Cup, like Tom Jenkins. It gets a double in the last 10 minutes that, uh, that seals the victory. Dylan Edwards' magic in there at the end too. Yeah, it's built on their defence, isn't it? The Panthers, look, they're just so good defensively. They they just find a way to get the job done. Look, 
even the Dolphins had seven line breaks to five, 43 tackle breaks to 36, and plenty of ball, 81% completion rate to 76. Look, it's just a game, really. You look at the, all the stats and you think the Dolphins should have won, but the Panthers just find a way, don't they? They just held them out and held them out, and then bang, bang, with two late tries. Just shows a lot about that system. It does, and it's pretty demoralising for the competition that they can uh, they can rest players and have Nathan Cleary on ice for another week, and they can just do that. They've still got to be the clear favourites, Barnsley, surely. Yeah, clear favourites. Um, it's Penrith and South for me. I'm surprised at how many people are riding on South, off South. To me, it's Penrith and South, and uh, I think they're Tier 1 and everyone else is, is chasing. Yeah, considering South haven't had Latrell for two months, I think people are forgetting about that. They also had a long stretch with their buy as well, so... The boy will catch it. The extra boys will catch him up the ladder a bit too. I think someone like Joy Arrow is uh, is really underrated too. Um, yeah, Joy Arrow coming back like their forward pack has been a little bit of miss. Who they've had to use? They've been missing people all season, and to be still as dominant as they were, particularly early when they had a lot of middle forwards. Yeah. So the Parramatta Eels twenty five twenty four over the Gold Coast Titans in an absolute thriller. This did not have no controversy in it either. There was some controversial moments in this one. Um, Parramatta needed to win this game, really, because as we've mentioned, they're they're pretty close as far as the top eight. It was a game where their origin players backed up in Moses and Gutho. um, But I thought they were going to win this easily. I really did. And I was surprised at um, how hard it was for them to get the win. In the end, though, it has to be said, Gutho came through. That try that he scored in the 66th minute was an absolute pearler. There were the arguments over whether his leg was out or not. I thought it was pretty clearly up still. And when I saw it live, personally, I thought, there's no way he scored this. Like, he's got up like he's celebrating. He's just been the jockey in the winning Melbourne Cup for three years in a row. He was just so excited, and he was celebrating like it was an easy try. That he just scored under the sticks, and I was like, mate, <laughs> I can't see any way that was a try. And then on the replay, you're like, shit. He might have got there. I think that he did. And it was um, one of those things where I think that Moses and Gutherson were nowhere near as dominant as they had been a couple of months before for the Eels when they started to go on that run. But when the match was on the line, you still had Gutherson step up and score that match winner. And then you still had Moses nail a field goal as well at the end. So uh, they both came through in the end and won that match. Yeah, it was after the first sort of 12 minutes or so, the Parramatta were going to win quite easily, but Titans, to their credit, they can score points. They stay in games. They just can't defend good enough. But um, not the Eels' best performance, but they did get there in the end. That Gutherson try, I thought, was a try. I didn't think it was a try live. <laughs> but then you watch the replay, his leg was in the air before he got the ball down. So that's a fair try. It wasn't the most controversial thing in the game. Um, it was interesting. The Titans lost the game to the Dolphins a couple of weeks ago with a field goal attempt and the players being offside. And then you watch that, the one with Tanner Boyd right at the end there and the three Eels players a mile offside and they don't get any penalty. So that's just another inconsistency with the refereeing. But, uh, it's one of those things, I guess. Uh, the clutch moments, Mitch Major stood up and nailed that field goal. So they're still um, heading in the right direction, the Eels. I think the Titans are just about cooking now. Yeah, it's it's got to be said, the um, the... I'm sure Titans fans won't find it funny, but the funny thing is with the offside on the uh, on the Tanner Boyd field goal, it was it, well, it happens all the time anyway. But the one that he had all the time in the world for, he missed. It was actually the charge down that they were yep. offside for. 
So, you know, the one that was actually, you know, close, I think the people got confused and thought, oh, they're all offside for that one. And, yeah, I mean, he had all the time in the world to nail that other field goal that wasn't chased chased down, and he missed that one. So they definitely had their opportunities. Tanner Boyd actually had probably his best game that he's had this year. Um, He scored a a line break try. He also... um, had a couple of different try contributions along with a line break assist. He was, he was quite good. Um, I found it interesting that this week there was an article for Daily Telegraph that said that they don't need Ben Hunt because they've got Tanner Boyd. Um, I'm not quite sure that he's risen to that, to that level, <laughs> but uh, I thought that he had a good game, um, but unfortunately it's still heartbreak for the Titans again. And um, the Eels get through. I have to say, if I'm going to pinpoint some stats to finish up on the round review, I need to mention that Bryce Cartwright. I I think that everyone sort of thought he was a placeholder to start at the end, at the start of the year. He's been outstanding this he's year. He's just made that position his own. Um, he actually had a little drop uh, about oh, maybe five six weeks ago, where the coach actually dropped him to the bench when they had a full complement of players, and apparently he was filthy about it. And I think that the old Bryce Cartwright would have kicked stones a little bit about that, and would have just you know gone down in his intensity level and, and ended up being a bench player for the year, but. To his credit, he's he's matured a lot. He he fought back and he still kept playing really well. And this game, he had 15 runs, three offloads, a line break, a try, uh, a try assist, a line break assist, five tackle breaks. Very hard to handle. And just one of those matches where you see him and you go, this was the Bryce Cartwright that we thought we would have when we saw him playing six or seven years ago at Penrith. Uh, and it's it's a Pretty big credit to him, but also to Parramatta that he's actually come through like this because even the last couple of years at Parramatta, you didn't really see this coming. No, he's finally fulfilling all the potential he showed in those early years with um, the Panthers. But I've been most impressed with his defence this year, Barnsley, on that edge. He's he's looked really good defensively, and I think his attack's coming off the back of being confident in defence. So he's definitely having the most complete season I've seen him have. He had all that scintillating stuff with the ball when he was playing 5-8 with the Panthers, but he always had those defensive lapses uh, for him to improve his defence the way he has. He's a much more complete footballer these days. He's having a really good season. He is, and uh, he deserves credit. And uh, I think that he's been a big part of the Eels' resurgence with what he's been able to do on that edge. Moving along, uh, the first slightly controversial topic that we're going to discuss out of round 20, Brandon Smith. Obviously, it was well played in the media and spoken about um, with after that possible season-ending loss for the Roosters. Brandon Smith was on the pitch laughing and joking and having a good time with uh, three or four of the Storm guys that he's friends with. Um, there's been a podcast during the week that he was on where he's quoted as saying that uh, playing footy is his job. If he can't have some fun with his mates after a game and have fun in life with his mates and everyone can go and get effed. Uh, it's been taken differently, I think, by a lot of people this week. Um, there's been a lot of fans that have supported Brandon Smith's stance. There's been a lot of fans that have said it's it's nothing uh, and blaming the media and stuff. I am sort of in between, per se. So as a Roosters fan, you know, I've probably got a bit of a unique perspective on it. You can tell me if I need to be pulled back in line after I tell you what I think, because I both think that it's not a huge issue and it's certainly not, you know, a big media story, but at the same time to me, I'm not happy with it at all. And I'll tell you why it's a small thing, but that small thing is indicative of a a whole A4 book 
filled pages with this type of attitude of Brandon Smith at the Roosters, in my opinion, since he's come in. And it's come from last year. I don't think that he was... He had the greatest attitude or motivation levels at the Storm last year. I think that was pretty well documented. And I think that if you're going off and doing coke with Munster, then that's probably a good indication or alleged coke because they said it was white powder and that's why they only got like two weeks suspension or something ridiculous. Uh, that's You can probably see that last year. And in, I really thought that he was going to come into the Roosters, into a new club, a point to prove, had to leave the Storm, and he was going to really put in. And I haven't seen anything of that. Everything that I've heard has been the opposite. There's been rumblings of off-field stuff already. Uh, it's his first year with the Roosters. And that's my problem with it. You know, the Storm can joke and muck around as much as they want on the field after the game. They just basically flogged the Roosters and won easily and they're sitting squarely in the top four. The Roosters' season is just about in tatters and over. And if I just think to myself as a fan, I was gutted after that. You know, absolutely gutted. There'd be Roosters fans that I know that absolute tragics that would have been just about in tears because they wouldn't know how important that game was. And if you've got fans that feel that way, they don't get paid. They're not. That's not their job. Why don't you feel that way as a player? And even if I put myself in issues, as a player, honestly, I wouldn't want to talk to anyone. You know, and even playing park footy, I'd want to go and kick the dog on the sideline. Like I'd just, I'd be filthy with that type of loss, even not at my job. Yeah, and it's just. It's, it's one of those things, per se, where it's not the worst thing in the world, but it does give you a little bit of an opening to see someone's character and to see where someone is at. And to me, you, you saw that with Brendan Smith, and I don't think it's a good place. And I don't think it's... He, he could have gone and had beers with his mates afterwards. He could have gone into the sheds where no one was watching. He had thousands of Roosters fans at the SCG there watching his side probably finish their season. And he's sitting in front of everyone laughing. Yeah, it's it's just not the best look. It's not the worst thing in the world. You know, it's you know, not front page news, but I didn't feel right about it. Yeah, it's one of those ones. You know, it's just the way the modern players are these days. It doesn't mean it's right, though, does it? Like, you, you think initially in the first five minutes after the game, he's still going to be pretty filthy and then go back in the sheds and catch up with the boys later. It just sort of looks like he's more keen to be in Melbourne, catch up with the, the Melbourne crew than playing for the Chooks. I mean, a bit of that probably comes. He's been fairly underwhelming all season, albeit he's had niggle with injuries and missed a fair few games and things, but he just hasn't really clicked all season, has he? So I think that's probably got part of why the fans and a couple of people in the media are probably poking at him because it's not like he's been setting the world on fire. Like if he'd been playing gun all season and they were doing that, you probably wouldn't hear anything about it. It's not a major issue, but I think that's what it is mainly. Yeah, and uh, look, that's definitely going to be a part of it. I'm trying to say it as politely as I can. I, I don't see him as being someone that's put in this year. And, you know, he's had injuries and stuff. But some of those injuries, he's been having some niggles across the last few years. And it's been well documented that his fitness hasn't been where it needed to be. And sometimes you cop those injuries when you aren't fully committed, you aren't professional, and your fitness isn't where it needs to be. And I took a bit of umbrage to his response about the go and get effed if you can't do that with his mates and stuff. Because, look... You're at he's at his job. Like he's talking about, oh, if he can't go to work and then afterwards go and, you know, have fun with his mates and stuff. He was at his job still. He's on the field. That's his job. He's still at work. Like we in every job, you know, it doesn't matter what you are, you've got to add you gotta act professionally to a degree while you're doing your work or while you're at your job, while you're in front of clients or while you're in front of fans or customers or whatever. And he was. So to say, Oh, you know, well, my job was over when the eightieth minute siren went, not really. 
Like, I don't think that it is. You're still representing the Roosters. You're still on TV there. You're still in front of fans that paid their money to go and see you. Like, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't love the attitude. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate. Um, and, but you're right. Like, if he was playing better, he's been incredibly disappointing. Uh, I didn't like the signing, but I defended it a little bit because I thought that he could get up. But, you know, if he was playing well all season, if he was on fire per se, if he was fit and firing and the Roosters were top four, you're right, we probably wouldn't be talking about it. But surely you've got the self-awareness and also just the emotions to understand that you're not in that place, don't you? Yeah, well, you'd like to have a bit more passion for it too. You can guarantee Jared Weira Hargraves was looking for a dog to kick after that after that loss. He certainly wouldn't be jumping up and down and carrying on the way Smith was with his mates. But um, I don't know, that's just the... Seems to be the way the young footballers are coming through these days. You see it every game. They're all, like, even when the Tigers get flogged, you know, they're all laughing and sort of patting each other on the back when they see old mates from both the Cowboys. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a <laughs> different generation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, context of the games is always important. If it's round two or three or something, it's a bit different. Um, but, you know, you'd, you'd hate to think that if, if the Chiefs got through to a um, preliminary final, and he lost, that he'd be on the field there, you know, having a chat for 15 minutes and laughing about it. Now, this was an important game for the Roosters, and I just think, yeah, we'll move along. The Tigers, your boys, they poached the Fainu brothers from Manly. A lot have been made of this one per so. Uh, I'm actually going to support the Tigers a little bit on this. I, it's, it's looking at paying them for four years. Um, yes, it is a long time, but I mean, at the same time, We've had this happen before with young guys. Uh, they're going to get paid close to 500000 a year each. Yeah, it's a lot of money for guys that haven't played NRL yet. But I will defend them a little bit, first, though. To me, two big points. One, this happens everywhere else. So, you know, make a big deal about that, too. Like Jack Howarth for the Melbourne Storm. I was Storm. about to say, no one's talking about Jack Howarth. They signed him for five years on the same money at 500000 a year, and he hasn't played first grade for two years. Yeah, exactly. So it does happen other times. Um, and, you know, other times it happens and it pays off. No one talks about it either. You know, it's... Um, Latrell Mitchell was on really good coin at the Roosters when he was coming through before he played first grade. Um, he wasn't on that much, but he was on well overs for second grade. Um, Boyd Cordner was another one that was on well overs for second grade. You know, you, you've got to invest in some of these guys. And for someone like the, your Tigers, per se, surely you think that... players aren't going to run to the Tigers to play with them, you know, especially young guys. Like if you've got young guys looking to make a mark for themselves, they're not going to say, I want to go and sign with the West Tigers. So you've got to be able to provide something that the other preferential clubs and destinations don't give you. And that's going to be money and it's going to be length of contract. And if you don't do that as a bottom dweller team, you're always going to be a bottom dweller team because you're not going to get the good players and getting young guys that could be the next superstars it could end up value. Everyone had to go at the Sharks. I know it's a different situation, but, oh, well, Hines has never played halfback. He's, he's never even been a starter. You're paying him 600000 a year. He ended up being the Delhi M winner. You know, these are the type of moves that when they come off, no one says anything about. So, And it does come off, you know, quite often in rugby league. So I don't think it was that bad of the Tigers. Probably the only problem I see with it is that they've, um, they've doubled down on it by doing two of those deals rather than just one. Oh, it's a gamble, but you... It's sort of got to take the gamble, especially when you're staring down the barrel of a second wooden spoon. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of heavy criticism on the Tigers for what they've done, which you know, is Tiger fashion, as per usual, from the DT and 360. Well, if, if it was the Melbourne Storm that signed them, you wouldn't hear a word out of it. 
Um, Latu Fanu has been recognised as a talent coming through the grades there at Manly the whole way through. It's no surprise that Scott Fulton's gone over to the Tigers and has been able to land both of those, the brothers, Samuela and, and uh, Latu. And they've also got um, Sione there as well. We signed him last year. The only brother that's missing is Manisi is in the clink. But um, it, you're not going to be able to say this is a good or bad move for two or three seasons. It could be a franchise-changing move if both of them come out and kill it. And if they if they don't, look, it's not massive money these days, 500 grand a year. Look, the salary cap's gone up that much. I mean, it is for two guys that haven't played for, well, Sam Weller's played a few games of first grade on the edge for Manly, and he's looked quite good, actually. The last two hasn't yet. They're only both teenagers, but I mean, oh, we touched on Jack Howard. I mean, Olafalafu, it's um, Olafu, it's um, stuffed his name up really there, the 5 8 at the Dogs. They did the same thing, poaching him from up in Brisbane. So, I mean, it's not like it's uncommon for clubs to take risks like this. It's, um, you can't really say it's a win or a fail until a couple of years gone and see if the players develop. If they do, they do. They don't, they don't. But sometimes you just got to take the risk. I mean, if the two Fano ends up coming out in four or five years' time and being one of the, the form halves in the comp, and everyone will be saying, oh, the Tigers did really well then. Well, yeah, I like one of the things that you mentioned there about the salary cap too, which I think is both um, something that fans forget about, but something the media shouldn't forget about when they're doing this type of reporting. Like you've got to look at it in context. At the moment, if the current CBA gets through, you know, across the five years of that deal, we're looking at a thirty-seven percent increase to to the salary cap. So I mean, it's not going to be thirty-seven percent straight away. It'll be gradual, but at the same time, you know that it's basically you know, what three seventy-five k a year if you're looking in relative terms. Uh, and you know, if if they were signed under the old salary cap or signed two three years ago, they'd be on like three seventy-five k a year. That that's not that bad. It's not. Huge, huge money. Considering um, with the new salary cap, the minimum wage is not a hell of a long way off that, is it? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think that it's it's too bad at all. Um, what do you have? You got high hopes for them? Do you think that they can come through? Do you think that they can be what the Tigers need in the future? Oh, it, you just don't know, Barnes. You see this all the time with this kid's going to be the next this and this and that, and unless they're an absolute superstar like a Greg Inglis or something or a Latrell Mitchell coming through, you just look at him and go, yeah, this guy's going to be an absolute star. There's no real no way of telling until they um, get in the first grade and start playing against, well, even Reggie start playing against men every week and see if they can kill it there and then move into first. So I don't hate the signings, that's for sure. They've got talent. What I've seen is Samuela. He was playing. He's more, normally a prop in the his age group, but he was playing on the edge at Manly. He was doing a fairly competent job there. Well, he was going better than uh, Kelma Talangi, to be honest. So I think that's definitely talent. I mean, Manisi was a, a really good hooker. The, the, the talents in the family. So yeah, I'm interested to see how they go. I can't see um, probably either of them playing a lot of first grade next year. I think that'll be a development year for them. I certainly don't think they'll throw Latu straight in as a halfback. At the Tigers in a wooden spoon team, I think they'll bring him through. But but they've got other plans of signing Aiden Caesar and Brody Croft and guys like that. So I think he'll be there to develop under the guidance of Benji. And who knows, they could end up working and whatnot. Well, having a a former superstar half like Benji is probably someone good to have there for him, that's for sure. So I hope it works out for the Tigers. I know a few Tigers fans and they're probably due for something to work out for them. So we can hope. (laughs) Thanks. Some kind of break eventually, <laughs> surely, Barzi. 
It's <laughs> three good years out of 23. He's not a very good strike rate. No, well, I mean, glass half full <laughs> is and it can't be that bad going forward because, you know, it would be impossible. Uh, positive pitch, the new segment. We're going to jump on the pitch for a positive one. NRLW kicking off. And I'm going to stay away from the negative that we haven't had any lead up or build up or anything because of the silly CBA stuff that's going on. Um, but NRLW is kicking off. It is going to be the biggest season there's ever been for NRLW. There's going to be 10 teams instead of six. It's going to be kicking off this week. And it's also going to have everyone playing each other once uh, along with the final series. So we're going to get more games than ever. And all of the girls, more importantly, are going to get seven weeks preseason in there as well. So it's going to really help, especially with the amount of players that have moved around, new halves combinations and things. I think that you'll see much higher quality per se from the start than what we have in prior years. In prior years, it's probably taken three or four weeks for the girls to really build up their combos and get to a point where it's it's starting to get to be really good footy. Um, and now I think that we might get to see that from round one because of the more professionalism, I guess, of the preseason that they've got included and, and different things like that. So um, certainly with the new teams, it's going to be interesting with having 10 teams as well. I think that makes it a lot more exciting. feels a lot more like a proper competition this year. Uh, so I think it's really positive where it's at as far as the competition size and the the launch of it. You know, it's also going to have some prime time games this week. So a lot of positive strides for the women's game. Yeah, it's good for the girls. It's um, especially having the longest season there, like, the way it was the last couple of seasons, you lose uh, two games earlier, then that's it. Your season's over. So, less been a little bit longer now. They've got a chance to, so if they lose a couple earlier, then they can change a few things and you're still not out of the race. So, that's good for them. Um, longer season's great. The girls' games, I can't believe how much it's developed in the short time it's been there. You can, it's going to be exciting to see where it's at in 10 years' time. I just, um, I just wish they could do something better with the origin for the girls so they're playing the origin before the season sort of I think it'd be even more of a spectacle if they had games under their belt before they went into it yeah that's true and it's probably something that I think they'll develop um, down the track Uh, we're having a look at the premiership odds and everything the Roosters are number one um, three to one odds around about you're going to get on them on most bookmakers certainly on Picklebet you can have a look at the futures and stuff but they have both already had a star-studded team, but recruited quite well. Um, when you're having a look at some of the top players, Millie Boyle coming across from Newcastle, five-year deal. She's going to be there long-term. That was a huge signing for them. Um, Isabel Kelly, arguably one of the best players in the game, still going to be there, which is great. Jess Sergis, a former uh, Dragons. And I think that one of the ones that people are sleeping on, or a couple actually, is Amber Hall and, and Taryn Aiken. Uh, Aiken in particular could have a really big season. Uh, so I think that they've they've recruited well. Uh, and someone like Millie Boyle especially, uh, exactly what we needed. Like we've got some really good backs, especially, you know, we've built a lot of our attack off someone like Isabel Kelly. And I love watching Isabel Kelly play. I think she's outstanding out in the centres. But in saying that, you know, someone like a, a big forward, like, like um, Millie Boyle, is exactly what that side needed. So I can see why they're favourites. $3 actually seems like pretty good odds for me for the Roosters, but I am a Roosters fan per se. I really like the look of that side, though, with those sidings. Oh, Millie Boyle's a massive boy. Look, she was huge for Newcastle last year. She's a brilliant player. She's the pain ass of the women's league, basically. She's unbelievable. So that was a massive get for the Chooks. Knights are still have a pretty decent side, but that's a, it's a massive loss for them. 
It is because I mean, look, they're, they're in a similar position as what the Roosters were. They had some really key halves that are superstars. Um, both Southwell sisters are outstanding, and to make up up to not really like as well. Um, but they needed that, you know, Millie Boyle there in the engine room for them. So that's going to be a big loss. Their third favourites actually just behind Brisbane. Um, funnily enough, though, I tell you what, the other positive here, like you talk about expansion and you look at something like the NRL and you think, oh, if the NRL put four sides into a competition that are brand new, they're going to struggle hardcore. The Cronulla Sharks, same for the women, are the four favourites on the betting markets at the moment. And that's to yeah. do with the fact that they've had a really strong um, second grade side for a lot of years. And they've also got Tonegato to come over, former Deli M winner. Yeah, that was a massive game. She's a great player. But she's really, really passionate too about winning a premiership. She's done everything else. Won gold medals with the rugby side and, and World Cups and all that sort of stuff. But she doesn't want an RLW premiership. But she's a massive game for the Sharks. Yeah, she could be a, a smoky M favourite to back up and go back-to-back, back, which, you know, in its infancy, I'm not sure that anyone's gone back-to-back back for the M in the NRLW. Um, she might have a chance to do that, leading the Sharks side, who has a lot of talent in it, per se, because, like I said, they, they've had that second-grade side they've been building for years now. Yeah, they've been pretty strong in the Harvey Norman Cup, so I think they'll make the transition quite well. Um a lot of people were sort of a little bit sceptical about going straight to 10 sides instead of maybe jumping to eight. But I think that it'll be a fairly successful season for the women's side at WNRL this year. I'm looking quite forward to it. Unfortunately, your Tigers, mate, they are the favourites for the spoon in the women's. <laughs> Despite having Kezi Apps, I know. Yeah. So there we go. Kezi Apps was a nice signing. But oh, and in fairness, they're equal on 17 to 1. Um, the Raiders women, the Cowboys women, and the, uh, the Tigers women. And look, they're the three new sides. So you would expect that those three sides are, are going to be at the bottom, but it doesn't mean they don't have some exciting signings there as well. So um, it has spread the talent, I think. It, having the 10 teams has both spread the talent really nicely where you don't really have as many superstar stacked teams. I mean, I think that Broncos team and the Roosters yeah. in the first couple of years were really stacked and you don't have it as much now. Um, and also some of these sides, you're going to see a lot more talent unearthed with some new stars because, like we said, the, the Sharks are the best example because they've had girls playing for a number of years. You're going to get some of those girls that you've never seen in NRLW actually be stars straight away. Yeah, it's quite exciting to see how the Sharks adapt and it show, it'll show the depth to the um, the women's game, but it's, it's great for the women's game. There's plenty of young girls out there playing rugby league, so they've got something to aspire to now, which is... Normally, you get the 13 and they sort of got to stop playing. There's, there's nowhere to go, but there's a lot more competitions and junior ages coming along now, and the development of the girls' game is fantastic. Well, kick off this week. Everyone take notice. You're going to get some primetime games as well. I think the Roosters girls play on Saturday night. Um, they've got a nighttime game at primetime, so you're going to be able to see that broadcast everywhere uh, with all the women's games, so it's going to be fantastic. Listener's Corner. This is a nice quick one, per se. What is a bugbear that you have in the game at the moment that you would fix <laughs> if you were um, boss of the referees or just, you know, Vlandis that could do whatever he wanted? What 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 nitpicking bugbear do you have with the NRL on field? Uh, the bunker and the touch judges, to be honest. The, the, they don't do their job anymore. The touch judges did for 100 years. They just go through the motions most of the time. And when they do decide to come in and intervene, half the time it's wrong. I hate that the bunker looks at everything and looks at try and they look for a reason to not give a try before they give a try. I have no problem with the on-field ref making a call and if it's wrong, it's wrong, move on. 
but nine times out of ten, the ref will make the call and the bunker will find something and they bugger it up anyway. Like the bunker's way too involved for my liking. I think they should just be purely for grounding of the football and move on. Let the on-field adjudication do their job. If you get something wrong, you get something wrong. But I think it's just very hard to, to take for the fans of the game when the bunker's looking at 15 replays and they still ball something up. Yeah, well, it was like probably about five years ago, they they did have a lot less say. So um, it probably would be good to actually go back to what it was. Uh, we brought in the whole reportable offences and stuff and whatever, but it seems like sometimes they just report an offence just so the bunker can have a say on something. Um, so I'll, I can't disagree with you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just choose an on-field thing with the players here. Bit out of left field. I don't know if anyone else has felt this, but I've felt it for decades, especially the last decade. It's happened all the time. And you saw your boy Bateman on the weekend doing it every single tackle, and it just absolutely kills me, Perso. The ruck, cleaning up the ruck. It has been better than what it has been before, but one of the things that markers are allowed to do, Bateman did it all weekend, putting your knees in, like getting up with your arms in the air and saying, oh, look, I'm off, I'm off, sir. I'm off, I'm off. And then you lean your knees in and it's real blatant and you're doing it on purpose. Yeah. And you can see it because the, the marker's leg bends and his knee goes almost into the bloke's head that's trying to play the ball. And one time every set, at least you see the player have to not play the ball and go around a knee to try and put the ball down and actually play it. And it is just clear as day that that's a penalty. You can't do that. And the rules in the rule book are the marker has to be a metre. behind a meter. That's, that's your thing. You're not 10 metres back, but you're a metre back. You can't be crowding in the play of the ball. And just because you let go of someone, uh, the, the refs say, oh, it's all good. It's okay. It's fair game. Bateman actually got into a, a bit of a fight that he started on the weekend, and it was all because he threw a bit of a knee in there. And, and the guy playing the ball took an exception to it. And it wasn't a, it wasn't even a penalty. I think it was a penalty the other way, and Tigers got the ball. <laughs> like it was, it's just bizarre to me. Yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. I know the point you're talking about. None of the uh, Tigers fan forums are going to whinge about that penalty. <laughs> but we shouldn't have got it. It's the whole ruck itself, Barnsley, is an absolute joke these days, really. Like, we want to be serious about it. It's it, Even just the, the playing the ball off the mark and that these days is just a oh, time out, go back and play it. Like, there used to be a penalty every day of the week. No one touches it. As long as you attempt to touch it with your foot these days, <laughs> it's like touch football. It's just ridiculous. It's like a 15-year-old's bedroom. It's the messiest thing you'll ever see. It's just it's just appalling. Like I mean, you can bring up like even the play of the balls. Like Asafa Solomona, I reckon he plays the ball one out of every hundred. He doesn't even attempt yeah. to touch it with his foot. Like it's just it, it, they want to clean up the speed, okay? And I, like I focused on the markers. They want to clean up the speed. There's so much that they could do with the markers and the calling it held quicker and rewarding the legs tackles and stuff just to clean up the ruck a little bit. So markers aren't as messy. Play of the balls aren't as messy. But I picked up the one thing because I don't hear anyone ever talk about that. And I'll tell you what, I bloody hate the knees getting thrown in when someone's trying to play the ball, but it's all fine. You know, I hate it. But we've talked about the judiciary a little bit. Let's go on to the spray of the week because I'm ready and rearing. <laughs> we've said before so many times, what's the judiciary doing? I don't understand what they're doing. I'll tell you what, Jared Wallace has gone from going and contesting a shoulder charge where it would have been four weeks on the sidelines of playing yeah. this weekend. TNA should have done the same thing. Uh, it's just unbelievable. I watched that and said, oh, they are they are mad. The Dolphins are mad for contesting this and trying to get a not guilty verdict. He's gone in with a quintessential textbook shoulder charge. 
And the argument was, oh, well, he couldn't wrap his arm because another player was there or he would have hurt himself trying to fit his arm in there. That's like saying I hit him around the head because he was wrapped up around the chest. Like, <laughs> I've heard people say, oh, he couldn't go anywhere else. Well, they didn't hit him with a shoulder charge then. Like, you're not allowed to do it. And I'm someone, per se, who loves the shoulder charge. Oh, you and me both, Barnsley. I'd be, I'd be sent off every week these days. Of course. But never wanted it gone. <laughs> Of defended players being able to do it, they should be able to do it because there's a lot of reasons why a shoulder charge tackle is the best reason to tackle that way. It's the best technique to tackle in a specific situations. But it's illegal now. When it came in, we saw guys getting suspended left and right. And even two years ago, that would have been an easy three or four week because the NRL would stamp down and said, you can't do this. And they turned around and said, it's for the health of the players. It's for player safety. It's... It's one of the, you know, they've got experts in. It's one of the worst, it's the worst tackle that can be done. It is the worst. So it has to be outlawed. It's the worst thing in the world. It's the worst when you get it wrong, yeah. And when you get it wrong, that's when you should be suspended, like a swinging arm. Exactly. You know, we could argue for days about why I mean you think that it should be there, but it's gone. And if they really think that it's player that safety was... and the worst thing, that was a that was a blatant shoulder charge per se, surely. Oh, both of them were. There was no wrapping of the arm. Like That's what the NRL's come down to. If you can do a shoulder charge, but you can throw one arm around and look like you're wrapping, you sort of get away with it. But both of those were just bang. Good shots in the old days, but blatant shoulder charge. So how we got off, I've got absolutely no idea. No. And someone on General 360 was trying to argue, or his arm wasn't next, his arm was trying to wrap around. No, it wasn't. His arm only came up because after the contact, the contact was so big, it pushed his arm up. When do players... Think about not wrapping their arm around because they've got another player next to them. It's <laughs> a split-second moment. If you go out in and wrap your arms around, you wrap your arm around, and then if it gets to the wrong spot, you tear a pec or a shoulder. Or what? They don't think about that. You're just running up the basketball. No, and that was, that, was a clear, that was clear as day. That's what was happening there. And look, I'll tell you what, next next round, when someone goes up and belts someone with a massive shoulder charge and just absolutely murders them, they can just turn around and say, oh, yeah, but he was being held on the other side, so I couldn't put my arm around. Yeah, well, is that going to be the precedent now, Barnsley? Is this, like, the NRLs are completely inconsistent with being, the only thing they're consistent with is being inconsistent. <laughs> Even Tino's arm was more, but he didn't defend it because he didn't think there was a hope in hell he'd get off. And then what they just throw the, the dice with Wallace and he gets off. So, I mean, have they set a precedent now? They've set a massive precedent. And I don't understand how they are going to stop. The only thing they've got going for them, the match review committee, is the fact that they, the players are now conditioned to not do what we saw in the weekend. You don't see very many shoulder charges. I mean, this is the same judiciary that was it was last season, wasn't it, when Fenerkin got suspended for a swinging arm that missed? Yeah. <laughs> the head, the head clash. So, so uh, this is not new, is it? It isn't, and you know, look, you're right. Like if Tino went, you know, what would he, what would he be saying? I mean, his one was one on one, so I guess he didn't have the same defense. But I tell you what, they're both exactly the same tackle. They're both just gone in to belt the other player. They are, and Tino's Tino's right arm actually did sort of move as he hit with the left shoulder. So I mean, if, if Wallace can argue a point, then surely Tino could have argued a point as well. Well, I mean, on Fox they're talking about how his arm's slightly out. So I mean, look. It, if you're saying that if the arm's not touching your body at all, you can just belt someone with your shoulder, then, I mean, you know, take it out two centimetres from the body, just make sure someone can see a little bit of sunshine through the corner of your elbow, and apparently that's fine too. I don't know. 
it, it's just weird. And then at the same time, you get someone like Mike Acevo who had a bad high tackle, but to me, wasn't like it's just, it, he should be suspended. But I, I would have thought that I would have gone and tried to get the grading downgraded there. So you got one guy who goes for a blatant shoulder charge and says, "I'm going to go and get off this and and say I'm not guilty." Yeah, and gets that is it off. Unbelievable. And then you've got Sebo, who on a high shot goes, look, oh, it's a high shot, but I'm just going to go and try and downgrade this because I don't think it's as bad as what you said. And he cops another week. <laughs> you know, like, try and understand yeah, the judiciary in the process and what they're actually looking at. It's like tripping, Barnes. We've had this conversation before. With but Trip used to get you 12 weeks. Nowadays, it's a, a slap on the back and a $1,500 fine if you get charged for it. It's sort of... Uh, it's, you just... Uh, the, don't know how they figure it out. The whole system needs a massive shake-up. Like, I know there's the whole loading system and just the grading system, and it just needs... Like, a swinging arm to the head is 10 times worse than what a shoulder charge that doesn't even knock a player in the wrong spot. Like, you know, I don't know. Well, the whole reason they were punishing guys so much for the shoulder charge was because they were batting on about how it's it's so dangerous, you know? Well, if... James Ackerman didn't die in the Queensland Cup. We wouldn't be having this conversation now. Mm-hmm. All very unfortunate um, and all very unfortunate for rugby league that you can't do those type of tackles, but you can't. And I don't know what the NRL is thinking, thinking that they can just um, start again and say, all right, we'll let the shoulder charge back in basically. Cause, yeah. But they didn't because Tino's got to see him on the sideline. It's just... Sure. And had Wallace had Wallace fought that and lost, he would have got the same suspension as Campbell Gillard did for blatant nose in the yeah. back. It just seems all over the shop and they have to tear it up, but they've said that for a decade and they've not really done it. So let's go on a legend rewind to finish off per se, because it's a lot more enjoyable to talk about big front rowers that could legally belt people and did it all the time. Oh, the good old days. Paul Harrigan. One club man at Newcastle. Uh, growing up, he was one of my favourite front rowers to watch. And it was just... A phenomenal career where I think you look at how good he was and then you look at his awards and you go, he should have gotten more than that. You know, he got a Ken Stephen medal in 97, Dalian Prop of the Year in 96. But I'll tell you what, he was much better than that. He was so essential to that night side, um, playing in that side that was very competitive, won a comp. Um, Joey Johns there, you know, I think would have not done as well as what he would have if he didn't have someone like Harrigan there. And he's a true enforcer. You don't really get enforcers these days per so. He was an enforcer. He was the leader, the alpha of that Newcastle pack. Everyone followed him. And if they needed a, a, a big jolt, a big pick-me-up, he would take a massive hit up on a whole forward pack and just absolutely kill everyone with the football. And everyone else in that pack would follow. And at the same time, being an enforcer, everyone on the other side was looking for him because everyone was scared. You know, he was a big man. Um, and probably by these standards, you know, a lot of people wouldn't realise, but he was six foot four and 111 kilos. And back then, you didn't get many guys that were six foot four and 111 kilos that played rugby league. And part of that as well was because they couldn't move very well if they were real big guys. And, and Harrigan could actually move pretty well, but he was also mad as a meat axe on the field and would just kill people. So I loved him. What are some of your memories from from the, the Chief? Uh, he's one of my favourite players growing up. Uh, living well, I live in Nelson Bay, which is in the Newcastle area, where it's a teenager. So we, I mean, our, um, one of our mates' mums 
would drive for three of us down. She'd sit in the car park and read a book while we went in and scrambled for a seat in the night's stadium because we used to get packed out all the time back in those days and saw a lot of him live. He was unreal, the chief. He just whacked blokes. He's just the old school. His battles with uh, Mark Carroll were in those mid-90s were absolutely unbelievable. The thing of folklore, really. And it's a shame his career sort of got... Um, Shortened by injury, he had a lot of injuries because he just played so damn hard. That was a, that was a thing. He was just an absolute weapon. I mean, going back to those mid nineties and you, when we had him, uh, Lazarus, Sirenen, and Roberts in the same forward pack for New South Wales. I mean, how good was watching the first ten minutes of every game with those guys? Just I would have just quit rugby league if I was on the other two. <laughs> they were all built similar, and they just absolutely belted blokes. I mean. He was just, he did had, he had no reservation for his body, the chief, and he just got in the trenches and, and did what he needed to do and led the team. I mean, probably from about 94 to 97, I reckon he was the best prop in the game. Even better than Lazo at that point in time. Yeah, he was. And uh, he, he ended up making 20 consecutive appearances for New South Wales between 92 and 98. Uh, 94, he really, Excelled game two. I remember him well because he got the man of the match in that game, and he was just the, the co- combination of work rate with the aggressiveness and how you could attack guys in defence like he did, and he even had like the sneaky offloads and stuff as well. Like he he was just a marvel for that three or four year period, and that State of Origin series absolutely killed it. Went on the Kangaroo tour in '94 there, and that was a really big Kangaroo tour. Had a lot of stars on that one. Uh, but he played you know, 20 total games for New South Wales, all consecutive, never got dropped. 20 for Australia, uh, six for country New South Wales, for those that remember City Country. And he born in Curry Curry, played for the Knights his whole life. Only had a, you know, about a 10-year career, 88 to 99, 11 years. But, you know, that was actually a long career for someone like him because, like you said, back then, you know, you got to 10 years as a, as a forward like he was. And that was about the use-by date, wasn't it? Because it was just, you put your body through so much and the amount of hits and the shoulder charges that you can't do now that were all the time then and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, it really took a wear on him. And he probably came out post-career better than a lot of the other guys. You know, I remember him um, not long ago going out and supporting Mark Carroll because Carroll had some health issues and stuff. Yeah, that is a funny thing. Like, they hated each other on the football field back in the day, but they're, they're really close mates these days, even to the point where in Spud's, um, his autobiography he wrote oh, last year, the year before, he, he got... Harrigan to write a whole chapter on um, their battles together. So, and when he was going through a tough time, the chief was there for him and that sort of stuff. So it just goes to show they had mutual respect for each other, hated each other on the field in those days, but um, off the field. Yeah, and it's a, another one of those those rivalries that wouldn't happen now. Would it? You wouldn't have gotten a Carroll. Uh, I think it was the '94 Kangaroo Tour. They made him. Um, that's a story I've heard, which is quite they funny. If you to listen to it. Yeah, they roomed together. <laughs> They hated each other. It's I think it's um Andy Raymond's podcast that they talk about it and both of them talk about it. We interviewed both of them separately and they <laughs> he was sleeping with both of them are sleeping with one eye out and ready to belt the other one. It's, it's pretty amusing if you get a chance to listen to it. <laughs> well, it is a shame that you don't get those sort of rivals rivalries anymore, but that was that's one of the best forward rivalries of all time. And you see some of those clips and obviously you have to mention that hit where Harrigan it gets played over and over, runs Runs at Carroll oh, off that 
smashes oh. him but fucks himself absolutely kills himself and i think <laughs> carol was hurting that and i think you saw him um there was an interview oh was that that game it was absolutely unbelievable well there's an interview and they spoke to gay and carol admitted like he was actually pretty pretty shot from that like he actually took it out of carol as well but carol you know with the adrenaline and stuff and what and seeing the chief on the ground had to go over and yell at him on the ground and stuff and yeah it's, it's just it's fantastic you know and well, that was footy in the 90s that, that's that, <laughs> Yeah, that's what we miss from the game these days. Yeah, the rivalry, um, the aggression, and uh, look, it, uh, some of it's quite serious. Like, I mean, you, you mentioned his career being shortened and stuff. In 1997, he was suffering from serious headaches and also seizures throughout that season. Like, if that was 2023, he wouldn't have actually played that season. He wouldn't have been allowed to. So, And that was the season he played more games than any other. Mm. <laughs> Which shows, I mean, how far the games come for player protection these days. But yeah, and I mean, I think there's some young player, some young fans will say, "Oh, you know, that's terrible and stuff." And it is like it's good where the game has come for player safety and preservation and health and everything. But at the same time, you have to admire the toughness and you know it, the passion. And like we talked about Cheese earlier and how invested he is and stuff. Like Paul Harrigan, it's a cliche to say would run through a brick wall. Back in the 1990s, he would have run through a brick wall. He wouldn't have laughed about it. He would have just done it. Like the the way that those guys put their bodies on the line and stuff. And he was head of that. Like you talk about Lazarus as being one of the best props ever, possibly the best prop ever. And as a complete prop, Lazarus was better. But oh yeah, Lazarus should be immortal in my eyes. But as far as aggression and um, hitting person and, and passion, uh, I, I don't think that I could pick anyone over the chief, even if there was two or three more talented props than him. No, it's just, it's just a different era. Like, imagine uh, after such a rival, like they play Origin and Test football together, Carol and Harrigan. And like, can you imagine Harrigan or Carol, if the other side teared up the other side coming up to them and having a giggle after the game, they'd be absolutely filthy. Oh, there would be. Uh, there was times where Paul Harrigan and Carol almost in fights after a game. You know, I'm sure that we had a few in the tunnel that I can't remember of from some of these guys, but you know. It's a different time, like you said, but it, if anyone, you know, this, the legend rewinds are always great to reminisce and talk about players whose careers are finished and also give them props and credit for great careers that they've had. Um, but, you know, it's also, you know, for a bit of everyone, you know, if you're older and you remember it, you get to reminisce and feel good about it and remember how good some of these guys are, especially some things that you've forgotten about. If you're younger and you're listening to the podcast, go on YouTube it, go and have a look at Paul Harrigan's biggest hits because well, honestly, you'll enjoy it. You'll see it's, it, he was a shoulder charge merchant. He was great, but he was also quite a skillful um, front row as well. He was similar to Steve Roach. He could get a good offload away you know, really well as well as being a, a hard enforcer. So, yeah, he, he was definitely one of my favourites of all time, the Chief. Also had a pretty good post game on the uh, on the footy show <laughs> for for a while. He went pretty good <laughs> at that. That, that. That's in my memory, you know. I remember like the Mark Carroll rivalry and some of those specific hits. That's when the footy show used, footy show used to be good, but you know. Well, I also remember Paul up. Harrigan next to Stir like, wanting to steal his milk after the chili contest as well, because uh, that was a good one. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious! It's half the stuff I used to get do on those shows. You can't get away with it anymore. They Matt the coat and stuff like that. We're trying to do that. Well, no, well, you wouldn't get guys yet. that would do what they did either. Like, you know, <laughs> see if you get the NRL three hundred and sixty panel. or... Um, the you know 100% footy on Channel 9 with Gus and stuff. So get some of these panels to do the chili eating contest to see how it, the, 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 the anti-ads and, you know, that's gold that Harrigan came up with as well. You know, 
Harrigan had a great post post career, and I think that a lot of I mentioned it too because I think that um, a lot of people probably pigeonhole him as this big aggressive dumb prop meathead, and he wasn't. He, you know, and you saw in the footy show. No, he's caught in articulate. You saw it on the footy show. Like he, he actually spoke very well and actually understood the game very well too. Yeah, that's it. He was. Um, he started off as a centre. Actually, he was a centre coming through Lakes United and the Newcastle Comp, and the Knights signed him in '88. So it took him a couple of years to crack it in the first grade. But oh, he's always spoken really well about the, the game in his media career, and he had a, a long media career there for a while. Yeah, he was good. Um, Post career, I used to love watching him as part of the panel on the footy show and, and everything else. Um, look, that's going to have to end it for the chief, unfortunately. Uh, he was one of my favorite props of all time, and he's very Newcastle uh, and also another era and one of the toughest props that I've ever seen play as well. Great one club man. So, chief, well done. What a huge career. It was great to reminisce. I remembered some things that I'd forgotten about, and that's what this is all about. Perso, great podcast, mate. Um, thanks for jumping on once again. Hopefully your Tigers can step up this week. You've got a couple of key signings for the next five years, so good luck. <laughs> i got I got no confidence that they're going to trouble the Dragons at Wind Stadium, but I'm going to go straight to the TV and jump on YouTube and go some Carolyn Harrigan um, spars. <laughs> that'll sort me out for the afternoon never disappoints if anyone wants to find the podcast you can find it everywhere soundcloud spotify amazon itunes make sure you subscribe that way you get the episode straight away uh make sure you share it around too if you think it's a good podcast if you enjoy it keep sharing it because it's always great to have some new listeners that i hear from now and again uh also follow us on twitter nrl underscore sc underscore all stars check out picklebet.com Picklebet.com, they are fantastic. And you can use your affiliate code for this podcast of All Stars. That's your referral affiliate code, All Stars, all one word. When you sign up today, use that and they'll know that you're one of our listeners and take fantastic care of you. But otherwise, enjoy the round of footy kicking off tonight. Enjoy round 21. Got Supercoach next week. Can't wait to talk more footy again with everyone real soon. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get 